when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Liz Truss's catastrophic 44 days as prime minister came to a sharp end this week as the Conservative Party embarked on yet another leadership race. We delivered on energy bills and on cutting national insurance. And we set out a vision for a low-tax, high-growth economy that would take advantage of the freedoms of Brexit. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be looking back on what can only be described as a completely bonkers week in Westminster. How Liz Truss became the shortest and one of the most worst prime ministers in British history, the very sticky end of her premiership, and crucially, what happens next? Including that question that is on everybody's list, will Boris Johnson make the mother of all comebacks? Our political editor George Parker and associate editor Camilla Cavendish will be unpacking it all with special guest Paul Goodman, editor of the Conservative Home website. Thank you all for joining. Ever since the disastrous mini-budget was wholly rejected by markets, the stopwatch had begun on Liz Truss's time in Downing Street. The view of her closest allies and ministers was that she had, at best, weeks or months left of her premiership, but events saw otherwise. Her new Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, was forced to bin the rest of her mini-budget, and with it, the last of her credibility. Very fractious scenes in the House of Commons on Wednesday brought things to a swift conclusion on Thursday. But why? Sir Charles Walker, a veteran Conservative MP, summed up the mood on why Tory decided they were fed up of Liz Truss. This is an absolute disgrace as a Tory MP of 17 years who's never been a minister, who's got on with it loyally most of the time. I think it's a shambles and a disgrace. I think it is utterly appalling. I really shouldn't say this, but I hope all those people that put Liz Truss in number 10, I hope it was worth it. I hope it was worth it for the ministerial red box. I hope it was worth it to sit around the cabinet table because the damage they have done to our party is extraordinary. Well, George Parker, where to begin? What a week it's been. I think when we were sitting recording the podcast last Friday afternoon, we couldn't have seen this happening. But let's, we're going to run through the week bit by bit and all the action and things really started to come off the tracks on Monday morning when we were prepared for more market uncertainty and Jeremy Hunt announced that he was going to bin the rest of that disastrous mini budget, which will surely go down as the worst fiscal event here ever. Well, I don't think there's any doubt about that. It was a total catastrophe and you could see it coming. Rishi Sunak had, of course, warned about it, what would happen over the summer. 
Yes, and in the end, it ended up with Jeremy Hunt reversing £32 billion out of the £45 billion of unfunded tax cuts. But that was really just a bit of it. I mean, the, the point was the whole government economic strategy had been blown out of the water. And you heard there in that clip at the top, Liz Truss saying she wasn't able to deliver this low-tax, high-growth vision she'd promised and the freedoms of Brexit. So I don't think it was just the unravelling of that particular mini-budget, but it was the unravelling of a whole post-Brexit dream, wasn't it? The dream of basically being able to pursue a very low-tax, very low-regulation economy to create this new, vibrant, high-growth economy. That dream died when Liz Truss stepped out into the street and onto that podium in Downing Street on Thursday. Well, let's hear what Jeremy Hunt had to say on Monday morning when he killed off that dream. We will reverse almost all the tax measures announced in the growth plan three weeks ago that have not started parliamentary legislation. So whilst we will continue with the abolition of the health and social care levy and stamp duty changes, we will no longer be proceeding with the cuts to dividend tax rates, the reversal of off-payroll working reforms introduced in 2017 and 2021, the new VAT-free shopping scheme for non-UK visitors, or the freeze on alcohol duty rates. But beyond that, the Prime Minister and I have agreed it would not be responsible to continue exposing public finances to unlimited volatility in international gas prices. So I'm announcing today a Treasury-led review into how we support energy bills beyond April next year. The objective is to design a new approach that will cost the taxpayer significantly less than planned whilst ensuring enough support for those in need. Well, Camilla Cavendish, thanks for joining us again on the pod. When we had you on last week, you were praising Jeremy Hunt and said you thought he was a good, solid choice to replace Kwasi Kwarteng as Chancellor. Was there ever any doubt he was going to essentially bin everything Liz Truss had stood on her leadership platform for? I guess in retrospect, you know, it seems, you know, now we think, well, of course he was completely right. It was extremely difficult to do. And the truth is that he has, as Michael Gove put it this week, essentially been running the country in partnership with the bond markets, with the Prime Minister, Liz Truss, sort of sitting to one side. It must have been very hard for him to do. But he, as you said, you know, he's done the right things to steady the ship, at least in the short term, particularly reducing the energy price package to 26 months, because it was that open-ended guarantee of two years to all taxpayers, making us all dependent on the wholesale price of gas that was the biggest blank check in the whole package. Well, Paul Goodman, and again, thanks for coming back on the podcast. You could see how weak Liz Trust looked on Monday afternoon when Penny Mordaunt uh, was, had to do an urgent question in the House of Commons and actually said this about the Prime Minister. Yeah. Well, the Prime Minister is not uh, under a desk as the... that she is, that she, with, with regret, she is not here for a very good reason. Paul, when you hear that, that is really the palpable sense of power draining from the Prime Minister of MPs, openly laughing at Penny Morden, the leader of the House, because Liz Truss just didn't turn up to the dispatch box to defend herself. Of course, there's a question about what Penny Morden was doing there and the extent to which she was pushing Liz Truss down, as it were, to pull herself up. But I think you've got to sort of stand back from that scene in the Commons and just look at the structural situation Liz Truss was 
in, she was elected without the support of the centre-left of her party, with the support of the centre-right of her party. And very simply, once Quateng had gone, once she'd reneged on the bulk of the provisions in the mini-budget, once she'd brought in Jeremy Hunt, and still later, once she'd brought in Grant Shapps, she'd lost the support of the centre-right as well. So she had nowhere to go, and her departure was simply a matter of time. And the other thing as well, of course, was this confusion about what was going to happen with spending, George, because Jeremy Hunt said on Monday that there may have to be tax rises, literally the opposite of what Liz Truss stood on, but also potential cuts to spending as well. And as we'll come on to in a moment, the pension triple lock was one of the things that was up in the air. And the mood we picked up from Conservative MPs was, what is going on? We didn't vote for any of this. And crucially, Liz Truss has no credibility left to deliver any of it. The package which is still scheduled to be delivered on October the 31st, is going to be, well, Jeremy Hunt himself said it was going to be eye-wateringly difficult. It will stand on its head all of the stuff that this trust was talking about during the Tory leadership. They're looking to fill a fiscal hole of about £40 billion. The speculation is that roughly half of that will be done on tax rises, roughly half on spending cuts. And that's a huge amount of difficult stuff coming down the track. And as you mentioned, the pensions triple lock, I mean, that was one thing that the Treasury would have liked to have got stuck into, but it had become a kind of totemic issue. I think they accept in the Treasury now that given how totemic it's been in multiple Conservative manifestos and crucial to shoring up the grey vote, that's probably got to stay. But I think almost everything else is on the table. Now, Tuesday, things calmed down a little bit, but obviously Liz Truss was nowhere really to be seen. But Paul, we know on Tuesday night, there was a crucial meeting between the now former Home Secretary, Suella Barfman, and Liz Truss. And it's not wholly clear what happened in that, but it sounds as if they had a real dispute over policy, particularly immigration, with Ms. Barfman being very keen to keep numbers low. And she's actively advocated going back to the famous tens of thousands pledge made by David Cameron and Liz Truss wanting to liberalise it. Do you think it was inevitable Liz Truss and Suella Braverman were always going to fall out? Yes, because Suella Braverman is an immensely ambitious politician who's just run in the leadership election, very clearly had her eye on the top job and is looking at it at a time when the Prime Minister is exceptionally weak. So I think this was clearly going to happen. But there's also this ideological element too, because Suella Braverman had to depart the scene because she basically sent government information to a backbencher and others on a private email. This is really a somewhat flimsy reason for her departure, and behind it was a big battle of different ideas about immigration policy. On the one hand, Suella Braverman was really standing for the traditional view, and the view, I think, of the 2019 manifesto, which was immigration must be restricted. On the other hand, Liz Truss is really much closer to the liberal ideas of the Institute of Economic Affairs and these other free market think tanks that she's grown up being very chummy with, which is that you go for growth. And after all, growth was the centrepiece of the Truss election campaign, at which point she really found that these two elements didn't really run alongside each other, the traditional restrictive policy and the more liberal growth policy. So something was always going to give. And in this case, it was Suella Braverman. 
Now, on Wednesday morning, Camilla, before we get to PMQs, there was news from Downing Street that one of Liz Truss's close aides, Jason Stein, who has worked for the Prime Minister for many years, was being suspended. And this came off the back of some very negative briefings about several cabinet ministers, including Michael Gove, former levelling up secretary, and Sajid Javid, the former chancellor, where he'd been described as shit, and Michael Gove had been described as a sadist. And apparently there was a meeting between Mr. Javid and Liz Truss, and he said, look, if you don't deal with this guy, I'm going to ask a question at PMQs. This is not normal, really, to have an aide going around acting like this, but it was and also for former cabinet ministers to make it a defining issue. Look, I think a lot of people who go into number 10 like to think that they're in an episode of the West Wing or in our country uh, in the thick of it. They think that the whole game is about manoeuvring. I mean, the trust government has been one of the most vindictive, badly run, narrow-minded governments that I have seen in watching politics for many years. And she made a fatal mistake at the beginning by only appointing to her cabinet people who had slavishly supported her, which meant that she basically left out most of the talented people. But I have to say, to then go the next step of briefing in such horrific terms against two of the most talented people in the Conservative Party kind of beggared belief. And I'm pretty sure that uh, Jason Steen wasn't uh, making that up just on his own. And Paul, you've written quite a lot about this, the fact that one of the fundamental flaws in the Trust government was that both in the cabinet, but also her Downing Street team, they were all total lawyers. There was not much diversity of thought. There was not much experience and not much people who had experience of governing. And that includes Mr. Steen. Some people will say that the moment the Trust government went wrong, was the mini-budget. I think the moment you could clearly see it going wrong was when she formed her cabinet, because the situation really is as follows, that you can uh, appoint a band of your own followers if you've just been elected on your own mandate, really at the start of your party's term in power, as it were. Middlesbrough Truss was elected in a fourth term after the Conservatives had just got rid, I think, of their third leader in about seven years, so it's a sort of fag end. She had only 32% support from her own MPs, the lowest total ever, I think, for um, any winning, winning candidate, and fundamentally was in a fragile position. And politically, the, um, the smart thing to do here would be to present yourself as a national leader, dealing with a national crisis, you could have dealt with the, the energy package in that sort of way, made a big thing of summoning opposition leaders in for talks, and really sort of projecting yourself as a, a national healer. Instead of this, Trust decided to go to war, not so much with the Labour Party, but with her own party, and with the two-thirds of it that hadn't voted for her. It was really nothing short of clinically insane. And when you think about that, George, it seems so obvious. Why would you? And also, we should remember, in the leadership contest in September, Liz Trump got 57%, not as high as the poll suggested, and certainly not as high as her team suggested. And again, this sense that she came in with this very pugilistic style of governing, but didn't have the mandate or support to, to back it up. No, she came in as if she had absolute control and absolute power. We soon discovered that was the opposite was the case. It was an extraordinary way to behave. I mean, even Tony Blair, in fact, especially Tony Blair, when he came in with that massive majority, never behaved in that way towards his potential enemies. But to do it when you're already in such a weak position, it was almost as if she'd gone through a manual of how to destroy your own premiership, not just in the way she went to war with her own political opponents, but the way that she just took policy ideas that were doomed to failure, were bound to wind up the electorate, and just proceeded anyway and said, well, I'm not concerned about optics. And there was kind of an 
arrogance around that group of people that they were right and everyone else was wrong. This had been pickled into a dogma, to paraphrase Neil Kinnock, over many years, formed in the, the think tanks in Tufton Street and, and then put into practice and it all fell apart in its first contact with reality, didn't it? It really felt if it fell apart at PMQs, which was pretty much a humiliating moment for the Prime Minister. I am a fighter and not a quitter. A book is being written about the Prime Minister's time in office. <laughs> Apparently it's going to be out by Christmas. Is that the release date or the title? <laughs> And again, Paul, it's that laughter when, you know, Liz Truss was totally unable to summon up much support from the Tory benches. And it very much reminded me of Boris Johnson's final days in Downing Street when we were watching that PMQs. And you could just feel Tory MPs weren't behind her. And by that point, it was a question of when, not if. And it didn't feel as if Downing Street had any plans for getting out of this. They were just trying to survive hour by hour at this rate, which we saw in this announcement that seemed to come out of nowhere that the pension triple lock would be kept after all. It was a situation of complete confusion and I was busy watching Trust really losing support on the right of her party as well as on the left over immigration as we've discussed. But she also gave a very equivocal answer to David Jones, the backbench stalwart of the ERG, over the Northern Ireland Protocol, which contrasted, really, with a much firmer response she's meant to have given the ERG in private the previous day. So you could tell at that point that the whole thing was falling apart. And I suppose the question that arose as a result, I mean, looking at this spectacle in the Commons, it wasn't just whether the Conservative Party could be led by Liz Truss, but whether in its present state it's capable of being led by anyone. That night, George, we had two crucial things. So Suella Barbman formally resigned and did a very cutting resignation letter that talked about this security breach, which was a written ministerial statement that was on her personal phone. And a senior Whitehall official to me said that that was complete rubbish because the WMS would have been public anyway. It wasn't exactly top stake secrets. And they also said to me, if we're being honest, a prime minister could easily hush that up if they wanted to. It seemed to be much more about those policy differences about immigration but essentially, Suella Bavman, in all but name, said to Liz Truss, you've got to go, that you're not taking responsibility. The party has gone in the wrong direction and your time has come to an end. Yes, I mean, I, the, I think it was a strong view held on the right of the party and certainly by Suella Bavman's friends that she'd been fitted up by the Prime Minister and there'd been this blazing row about immigration. The immigration lever was one thing that the Treasury was very keen to pull to get growth going. It's one of the easiest things to do, actually, on the supply side to get growth going. Uh, Liz Truss had gone along with it, but of course... That created a huge amount of tension with Suella Bravman. She went out in a blaze of glory. The resignation letter was absolutely cutting. She said, I've made a mistake. I've taken responsibility. I resign. Clear implication to Liz Truss, why don't you do the same thing? That was a disastrous moment, but just added, of course, to the sense of chaos that we're probably about to come on to in the House of Commons division lobbies a few hours later. So, Camilla, that night, for inexplicable reasons, the Trust government, continuing with its death wish, decided to have a vote on fracking, which is probably one of the most contentious policy issues within the Conservative Party. And it splits right down this difficult line in the party between those who are the YIMBYs, who want to build, who want to get fracking, who want to go for that growth agenda, and more traditional Conservatives who care about the physical environment and would prefer to have renewables or nuclear power, what have you. Why on earth did they decide to press a vote on this? Well, I'd love to know the answers to that question, Seb, because I think one of the other aspects of this is that every 
part of the management of government and party has been a failure in the last three months. And in fact, I think the chief whip and the deputy chief whip resigned that night to add to the shambles. And there were conflicting reports, rumours going around MPs as to whether this was supposed to be a vote of no confidence in the government or not. There was a three-line whip, but 40, I think 40 Tory MPs defied it, which pretty much did demonstrate that she had lost all authority. To go back to the wonderful clip we played of Sir Charles Walker, who I, I really do admire. I mean, he really spoke for the country that night when he said, you know, I've been there for 17 years. I've never been a minister. I've been keeping my head down and I am sick of this. And it was just the utter shambles and lack of decisiveness that that I think has really finally spelled the end of our premiership. Well, because George, this was actually a Labour motion that was put forward on facking, but the fatal mistake was to make it a confidence issue in the government because obviously the fixed-term Parliament Act no longer exists. So if you make something a confidence issue and you lose it, that therefore means it's the end of the government. And the report of some of the scenes seemed to be totally chaotic. The Chris Bryant, the senior Labour MP, tweeted a picture of a standoff in the voting lobbies. And of course, possibly one of the quotes of the week came from Craig Whitaker, the Deputy Chief Whip, who came out of the voting lobby and said, I am fucking furious and I don't give a fuck anymore. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a nice total chaos. There was one account I heard. I sort of went down to the strangers' bar straight afterwards just to catch up with some of the gossip. There was a claims that Wendy Morton, the chief whip, had resigned in the division lobbies, and that Liz Truss had been seen dashing out after her to try and persuade her to change her mind, which I think ultimately she did. Look, I can see why the government decided it wants to make a confidence motion because it wasn't just about fracking. It was basically about the Labour Party trying to get hold of the Commons order paper and be able to tell the government what to do in terms of legislation. But you just can't do it. If you're in a situation that's as bleak and weak as Liz Trust found herself in, I don't think you can even dream of going down the route of turning things into votes of confidence. And then what do you do? If there had been a... Well, if they'd actually imposed this, they'd have ended up with 15 or 20 or so fewer Tory MPs on the on the, uh, on the the government list. So, you know, it was, the whole thing was doomed to failure. Well, Paul, you spent nine years as a Conservative MP. This is not normal behaviour, just to clarify. And there was talks of people being manhandled, of being physically taken into voting lobbies, and then still confusion about whether this was a confidence issue that Graeme Stewart, the energy minister, went to the ballot box, said that it wasn't a confidence issue. And then at 1.33am on Thursday morning, lobby journalists got a message out from Downing Street saying it was a confidence issue and MPs would be reprimanded in some way that never came to pass. There are two different issues here. The first is the manhandling and so on and so forth. I'm a bit cool about that. I never saw any when I was there in 10 years. Then again, I was an opposition MP and the temperature in the opposition lobbies is usually a bit cooler. But I think those of us who've been around for a bit remember tales of some pretty lively whipping in the Blair years and indeed back in the major years with a particularly well-known heavy in the whips office called David Lightbound. So I don't think any of that is at all exceptional. I think what has changed is that there is a culture now abroad, which I think quite rightly finds the prospect of violence and threats and people being carried up and taken from one place to another to be completely wrong. And I think that's a a step in the right direction. The point I'm making is that's nothing new. I think what is new is the astonishing level of incompetence of the government in combination with the whips, because uh, we've heard of things going wrong in the Commons before, but not really on this scale, as far as I can remember, and not on a sort of vote of confidence, really. So first it's on, then it's off, 
then it's on. It's what I called on Conheim the Wendy Morton hokey-cokey. You didn't know whether she'd resigned or not, whether she'd stayed or, or not. And it's a token of what um, Camilla was talking about earlier, which is the, the sheer wretchedness of this Downing Street operation. I mean, the worst, the most adolescent and contemptible I've ever seen. Well, Thursday morning, George, was when that operation came crashing down. And we know that Sir Graham Brady, who's chair of the 1922 committee, went to visit Liz Truss, as he did with Boris Johnson, as he did with Theresa May, and essentially said, look, you've got to go. And if you don't go the smooth way, we'll change the rules, have a vote, you'll lose the vote. And Liz Truss had pretty much given up by that point, based on what we've been what we've been reporting. People tell us that on Wednesday evening... After the Suella Braverman, Dave Barclay and the chaotic scenes that we've just been discussing in the division lobbies, this trust still seemed to think somehow there was a way through and she could hang on. But I'm told that by Thursday morning she slept on it and realised the end was nigh. Then we had the figure of Graham Brady coming in through the back door of Downing Street, which is never a good sign in situations like this. And as you say, he delivered the coup de grace alongside Therese Coffey, the Deputy Prime Minister, and also Jake Berry, the chair of the Conservative Party. And people say that by the time it came to that, that Liz Truss was resigned to her fate and it was almost like a a weight was lifting off her shoulders. Just one little bit of colour, which I don't think we've reported yet, but it's intriguing, is that after this meeting where Graham Brady basically told her her time at Number 10 was over, he said, I don't want to go out the the back door yet because the press are waiting for me. So he went up into the Downing Street study, had a cup of tea and watched events developing on telly as Liz Truss prepared to go out into the street to announce her resignation. So, so the executioner was upstairs while the, while the executionee was downstairs preparing to, preparing to resign. So extraordinary scenes. Well, I'm sure he sat back and thought, well, that's a nice job. Well done there. Camilla, what did you make of her resignation speech? I mean, the first four, it was just sort of totally farcical that we were here again. It felt just like yesterday. It was Boris Johnson standing outside number 10 with his podium announcing the Conservative Party had lost faith in him. And in her speech, she really just sort of didn't do that much regret. She talked about the energy price guarantee. She expressed regret she couldn't have done her economic reforms. But it seemed almost sort of totally oblivious to reality. Yeah, I mean, some people have been joking that Downing Street should just retain the lectern outside the front door because they seem to need it so often. Look, I think, to be honest, I mean, to be fair to her, it was pretty difficult. It was mercifully short speech. As you say, she didn't really exhibit very much regret. However, she avoided doing what Boris Johnson did in his speech, which was a kind of, God, you'll miss me when I'm gone. I mean, that was, that was, I think, even worse. And, you know, she, she was on repeat. I, I suspect, having seen her face on Monday when Jeremy Hunt was defenestrating her entire package, I think she'd probably gone into a state of shell shock, to be quite honest. Um, and that was about all she could do. So we are now looking forward to another Conservative Party leadership contest. But unlike the last one, this one's going to be a bit shorter. Let's hear Sir Graham Brady explain. I have spoken to the party chairman, Jake Berry, and he has confirmed that it will be possible uh, to conduct a ballot and conclude a leadership election uh, by Friday the 28th of October. So we should have a new leader in place before the fiscal statement, which will take place on the 31st. So, Paul, again, I dread to think how many Conservative leadership contests you have experienced, watched and given opinions on. But this one is at breakneck speed. We've never had anything this quick before. And the crucial thing is that high level to get on the ballot. In the last contest, it was 20 MPs. Now it's 100 MPs. And it's clearly Sir Graham Brady trying to whittle it down very quickly and potentially help some candidates and hinder others. This is an unfashionable thing to say, but I think the 22 executive 
have handled this quite well because the constitution obliges them if there are two candidates, the constitution of the Conservative Party, to go to the members. And there's no way round that without amending the constitution, which is a very time-consuming, laborious and uncertain business. So what they've done very sensibly is they've set the threshold in such a way as to eliminate all the jokers, of whom there are always some, and basically to ensure at a threshold of 100 that you really can't have more than three candidates sort of getting through. So I, you know, I think that the rules have been set sort of pretty fair and square. Now, the question everyone is naturally asking is, does Boris Johnson want to return to Downing Street in the first place? And can he get 100 nominations, which Rishi Sunak, assuming he wants to stand, probably can. Yesterday evening, I thought it would be difficult for Boris Johnson to get to the 100. But some of my best, wisest and most well-informed friends think that he can. I really wouldn't like to put any money on it. But I do think if he gets the 100 and if he gets into the ballot, I doubt at the moment whether there would be more than two people in it namely himself and Rishi Sunak. And this is a pretty nightmare prospect for the Conservative Party to have Boris Johnson in a final ballot in front of the members, having resigned up against the man who resigned rather than stay in his government, Rishi Sunak, it really couldn't be worse. Well, George, that very much is the battle royale scenario, the the season finale of this drama we've been living through <laughs> for the past 12 years, if that does happen. So just on the contest, so as we said, we're recording this on Friday afternoon. Nobody has formally declared their intention to stand, but there's four people very much in the ether, as Paul said, Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, Suella Barverman, and also Penny Mordant as well. And it's very uncertain what's going to happen. But just on the Boris Johnson point, let's hear from Christopher Cho, who's a right-leaning Tory, giving the case of why he wants to see the former Prime Minister make a miraculous comeback. I don't see that there's really um, any of the candidates of coming forward are um, going to command my support. And I think that uh, the news that uh, Boris Johnson might be riding to the rescue of the country and the Conservative Party is really a, a great tonic. And I'm really excited about that prospect because I didn't want him to be deposed in the first place. I said we'd rue the day that he was deposed. When you hear that, George, like there are a lot of Boris loyalists in the Conservative Parliamentary Party who agree, but the crucial question is, can he get to 100? Because my feeling is, based on the conversations on Friday, if he knows he can get to 100, he will run and he will probably win. But that is the crucial thing. That is crucial. I thought Paul summed it up very well. My initial thoughts were the same as Paul's, that I thought it was very difficult to imagine him getting to 100. But as the hours have drifted past and the, there's a bit of momentum building up behind him, people are coming out behind Boris Johnson. So I think it's entirely conceivable. But he, as you say, he won't stand unless he's certain he can get to that 100 vote threshold. Then we are into a really difficult situation, as Paul just described. Not just because you've got two armed camps facing each other, the Boris camp who hate Rishi Sunak because they think he's a traitor, and the Rishi camp who think Boris is, Johnson is totally unsuitable to office. I mean, that is, the party, if it's to stay in office, needs to unite. This would be the worst possible scenario. Then the danger of this going to the party membership, who probably, in that situation, would probably back Boris Johnson, although it's not certain. Then you get into a scenario where Boris Johnson becomes prime minister with a House of Commons Privileges Committee inquiry about whether he lied to Parliament, still hanging over him, and with the possibility, as I was speaking to one Tory former cabinet minister, earlier on today, who said, we could be back here again in three months' time. You know, he could be suspended from the House of Commons, he could be subject to a by-election, he could be out of the House of Commons. 
And then three months' time, we're doing this again. I mean, it's just an amazing and frankly ludicrous scenario. Camilla, obviously, when the Tory party chose Boris Johnson in the summer of 2019, it was a risk and a gamble. But as George just outlined, it would be another level and risk and a gamble for them to do that again. Because as someone who's just written a book on the first fall of Boris Johnson, I should add the first in now, you know, his Downing Street operation never functioned very well. In the three years he was there, he went through scores of aids. He definitely struggled to make the job work for him. And it does seem somewhat odd that Conservative MPs are looking at this situation situation and think, actually, this is the man to get us out of this mess. Yeah, my hunch is that Boris Johnson right now is loving the attention, loving the speculation, and he may not actually run because I tend to think that he probably won't make the 100 threshold. He'll get a lot of donor money, but he may not make the 100 threshold because so many MPs are so angry that he has put them in this position. And there are a certain number who've certainly said to me they will actually resign and trigger by-elections if he were to become prime minister. So I think it's possible that he may not actually stand at all. However, as you've said, if he does, he's likely to be anointed by the party members. And this come, brings us to the next issue. I simply cannot understand why the 1922 committee is allowing this to go back to the party members again. What this means is that a system which was established to elect a leader of the Conservative Party, but not a prime minister, is being allowed for a handful of people in this country to select the prime minister who's supposed to govern for the nation. And this is not a recipe for success. Labour had the same problem, which led them to Jeremy Corbyn. I simply cannot believe that the 1922 committee has not taken this opportunity to change those rules and ensure this contest is only held between the MPs who, let's face it, actually know the strengths and weaknesses of these candidates. Well, I think as Paul, you outlined, that is quite a tricky thing to do with the Conservative Party contest. But is that, let's throw it forward to the other three or four candidates in the mix as well. So Rishi Sunak, if Boris Johnson doesn't run, Rishi Sunak feels like the hot favourite to win, the natural person who will do this. But then Penny Mordaunt might be able to come down the middle and become a compromise. And if you've got that sort of battle royale scenario George was talking about between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, Penny Mordaunt might be the, the candidate MPs coalesce around just to try and stop this psychodrama? Thinking about it aloud, what we're dealing with at present is nominations. It's not actual votes. So let's just suppose for a moment that Boris Johnson says he's not going to stand. Let's go with that bit of the conversation that we've been having. Immediately, the 50 or so declarations of support that he's got are available to go to someone else. So watching the timescale of all this will be very interesting. If Boris Johnson presses ahead, I would say at the moment that he and Rishi Sunak are like, more likely to make the ballot than anyone else, given the balance of numbers. If Boris Johnson sort of pulls out, or Rishi Sunak astonishes us by saying that he's not going to stand, then all these nominations, all these MPs who've declared for someone or another, well, they're up for grabs. A new entrance will come into the lists. So, I'm deliberately painting a rather murky picture about what happens at the key, as it were, to the murkiness is Boris Johnson's intentions. If he just says he's going to stand, 
it's a race to see whether he gets the 100 nominations or not. If he says he doesn't, I think the whole thing could be thrown wide open. And George, finally, where would you put your money on at this <laughs> point? I'm sorry, the question you don't want to be asked after this very long week between those candidates. We've obviously mentioned Penny Mordaunt, Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak. And we should also, of course, mention Kemi Badnock, uh, the International Trade Secretary, who is mulling over a bid, which again, could further split the right vote. And because of that high threshold, Sir Graham Brady has made, it could split the right vote, which again would help Mr Sunak. Well, having um, been tempted by your previous invitations to make predictions, seven predicted that Boris Johnson was going to lead the Conservatives into the next election. Maybe I should go with Boris Johnson to help to redeem some of my earlier predictions. I still think that at the end of the day, the, the party will look into the abyss and they will put competence over ideology and they'll go for Rishi Sunak. Uh, I know he's a divisive figure in the party, but just as we're speaking today, the markets are starting to show some volatility again because of the uncertainty about the future leadership of the party. I think that could play a factor in the votes on Monday, actually. And I think in the end, the party will just stare into the abyss and think we've got to step back and uh, Sunak's the person who's best placed to pull them back from the brink. And Camilla, give us your predictions for the next week ahead. I agree with George that Rishi Sunak is by far the best placed person to bring the markets back from the brink. I'm not sure, unfortunately, that they will go for him. And I think it is quite possible that we'll end up with Penny Mordaunt on the basis that, in fact, the Boris Johnson factor throws everything else up into the air. And finally, Paul? I think if Boris Johnson gets on the ballot in front of the members, he is the favourite to do it. If so, I have to say, I think the Conservative Party will be engaged in a kind of dance of death as the consequences become apparent. But that is my fear as the weekend looms before us. I think at the moment, Penny Morton is getting a bit squeezed out and that the other obvious option, uh, imperfect though it is, is the option that I supported in the summer, namely Rishi Sunak. Well, by this time we record next week, we will have another Prime Minister because the race will be over by then. So on Monday, we'll have the first round of shortlisting where Conservative MPs will whittle the three down to two. There will also then be an indicative vote to give the membership a sense of who has got the most support among MPs if there are still two candidates because, of course, there could be some backroom dealing and there's been suggestions, George and I have reported on, that uh, if it is Penny Mordaunt and Rishi Sunak, Penny Mordaunt might do a deal with Mr Sunak to be his number two and stop the race going out to the members. But if it does go to the members, we'll have a nice, safe and secure online poll, which is obviously not open to any kind of interference. And the new PM will be announced next Friday. But until then, George, Camilla, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. What a week in Westminster it's been. And that's it for this episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoy the pod, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes every Saturday morning. And also please leave us a positive review and a nice rate. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineers were Breen Turner and Yankees Eggsworth. Until next time, thank you for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.